welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Well, you can turn in your Bibles to, to chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians. We are very quickly coming to a close of our study in this, uh, this great letter. Arguably, Paul's most personal letter to all the churches that he, uh, that he wrote. Um, and, and he was doing that because of the, the breakdown, the relationship that he had with Corinth. A group of people who he called these super apostles, most eminent apostles, a bit of a uh, not meant to be a, uh, an affirmation of them. Really, he was a tongue in cheek because they they saw themselves as, as being most eminent. And he really was just calling them the super shiny ones. And uh, how these people had come in and they'd sowed all kinds of division between Paul and the, the church in Corinth. And that, that context is important. In fact, that context is important whenever you're, you're studying scripture. Whenever you're reading scripture on your own, it's important to keep in mind what is the, the larger context at play. And, and I say that because I, I do hope that you read scripture on your own. It's, it's sort of there was a time where that was a regular thing that people would do often, uh, but it's sort of fallen out of favor, I think, with all our different opportunities and options out there with social media and, and streaming and everything. We, we've kind of forgotten to the value of, of just reading the Bible on our own. But uh, there's great value in that because unlike any other book, when you read the scripture on your own, you're getting to know the author even more than just a regular autobiography, because what's different about scripture is when you're reading that book and it really is an autobiography, it's God's story, about himself, he's right there with you. So it'd be like reading an autobiography. If the author was right there commenting with you as you read, that's how special it is to read the scriptures. But, but I realize it's also a little hard sometimes to read the scriptures and you're not alone. Even Peter said that, especially about Paul's writings, that it's hard to comprehend and understand sometimes of, of what Paul's saying. But again, it's important to understand sometimes the literary uh, context in terms of, is it a poem? Is it a narrative? Is it a letter of instruction? But again, what is the larger context? Because these are, these are words that were written to people thousands of years ago. And so it's, it's helpful to kind of imagine yourself in their own shoes, or I guess their own sandals at the time to kind of give a, a proper understanding of, of how they would have understood that passage to give you insight as to how you might apply it in your own life. And that's what we want to do this morning because there's a context to what Paul's been saying, what he's been writing here. And that context again is, is restoring the relationship between Paul and Corinth, restoring that breakdown. And, and if we can understand that context, then we can really understand why Paul's saying what he's saying because he spent almost 12 full chapters at this point, restoring that relationship to now over the next kind of couple handful of verses to say some pretty difficult things. He's going to, he's now going to address some things that are, are hard to address, but he's kind of earned the right. He's, he's restored the relationship. And so all of that credit that he's built up, that they know his heart, that he know his, his passion for them. Now he's going to be able to, to meddle to speak some things into their lives that might be difficult to hear. Uh, and I say all that because maybe that's going to happen to you and I today, that 
that we've hopefully established a context of, of, you know, our heart for you, you know, God's grace, you know, his love for you. But now we're able to say to meddle a little bit, to say some things that might be difficult to hear, but understand hopefully that it's what you're hearing is from the Holy spirit. So join me then in second Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 11, we're going to read a, a good chunk to the end of the chapter. So Paul here, he writing to them, he says, I've become foolish. You, you yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me of this wrong. Here for this third time, I'm ready to come to you. And I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. Certainly I have not taken advantage of you, though any of those whom I have sent to you have, have I? I urged Titus to go. I sent the brother with him. Titus did not take any advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? All this time I've been thinking that we're, all this time you've been thinking that we're defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may not find you to be what I wish and you may and may be found by you not to be what you wish. That perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, anger, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality and sensuality, which they have practiced. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as we study the scripture, we don't study it alone. Your Holy Spirit is with us. Your Holy Spirit is in us. And you can now speak to us as we go through it. And I pray, Father, that we would hear from you because those are words of life and words of encouragement, and words of hope. Even if they're difficult things for us to hear, we know you're saying them because you love us. And that is what motivates you. And that's how we can receive it. In your name we pray, amen. So verses 11 and 18, we're not gonna spend a lot of time on that passage this morning, but it's basically kind of wrapping up Paul's defense, his defense of his credentials, defense of him as an apostle. And he began that in earnest in chapter 10. I mean, it's really been the entire letter, but in earnest, he began to, to address that, that subject in, verse, in chapter 10. And he's kind of wrapping it up now. And he began in verse 11, says, you've compelled me to be foolish. And remember, he said the foolish part was beginning in the middle of chapter 11 till the end of, or middle of chapter 12, where he was comparing himself with these other uh, apostles, these false apostles, the fake apostles. And he says, it's foolish to compare because it's not about what you do. It's about what God has done. That's what matters the most. But he was saying, you've, you've compelled me to do that because that's what's important to you. But I, I've proven to you that I am an apostle. I, I showed there are signs, there are evidence of an apostle. He says, I sh I, you saw that. I performed those miracles, those wonders, those signs in your presence. My only mistake was I didn't, I didn't take money from you. That was it. That's, the, that's your big issue with me. And he says, that's not why. I'm not interested in what you can give me. I'm not interested in your possessions. He says, what I'm really interested in is, is your heart. 
And I think he, he expressed that so clearly in verse 15, where he says, I will most gladly be expended for your souls. I'll lay down my life. I'm not, I'm not looking to gain. I'm not looking to, to profit off you. I'm looking to love you. And I care about you and your heart. That's what I'm after. And so he was expressing that. And, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on that passage because I really want to focus in on verses 19 to 21. So in verse 19, he says, all this time you've been thinking we've been defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding beloved. See, he wasn't defending his reputation for his own sake. He wasn't angry that, that people had dragged his name through the mud and, and now they had a misunderstanding of him. That's not what his big concern was. Remember what Paul wrote in the Galatians that, that, you know, it's um, he's not a man pleaser or even in the first letter to the, to the Corinthians, he says, I, I don't need your good opinion of me. So he wasn't defending his reputation for his own sake. He says, I'm, I'm saying all these things. This defense of my reputation is before God for your upbuilding, for your benefit. The word they're upbuilding in Greek is oikodome. And it literally means to build up, to, to build a house. It's, it's most often translated though as to edify. And so you think about that word edification and it means to encourage, means to strengthen. It does again, mean to, to build up. He says, that's what Paul's saying. My heart, my desire is to edify you, to support you, to strengthen you, to build you up. That's why I'm sharing all this which I think is interesting because for a lot of preachers out there, their goal is to tear their people down because when you tear them down, now they need you and you can control them better. And that's not what Paul's goal was. His goal wasn't to say, Oh, you need me. The goal was, I want to love you in a way that you're going to trust Jesus more. Remember he said that at the beginning of, of chapter 11, right? That, that he's jealous for them in a way because he understands that they don't belong to him. They belong to Jesus. That's his goal is to present the bride of Christ to Christ in all her glory and all her perfection. And that's what he's after here. And so he's in this sense of trying to build them up, trying to strengthen them, trying to mature them. And I think there's a great word picture there for us. Imagine, imagine you're stranded on a, desert, a deserted island, right? You're, you've been abandoned there. You're all by yourself. You need certain things, right? What are some of the things you need if you're on a deserted island? You're alone on the deserted island. What do you need? You need water, fresh water, right? You need to be able to drink materially, right? This is the one time it's not Jesus or Moses is the answer. Okay. So you need some fresh water. What else do you need? You need some food, right? Some sustenance. You need some, some fire maybe to keep you warm and you need a shelter, especially if you're there for an extended period of time. Right now, this shelter that you need, that you're going to have to construct, that you're going to have to build, it, it should be a stable structure. It should be a strong structure because if a storm comes through and you have a very weak structure, that's going to get knocked over and it's going to leave you exposed and maybe hurt. And so the strength of the structure matters and that how it's, how it's constructed and, and what it's tied down to matters. This is what Jesus was talking about when he was talking about the, the two builders, Remember the two builders, one who built a house on sand and the other built it on rock. And the house built on sand didn't have a good foundation. It wasn't strong. It wasn't stable. So when a storm comes through and it, it washes away the sand underneath the house, the house gets washed away with it. 
But the one that's built on a rock, the one that's solid, doesn't go anywhere. It stays stable. It stays put. And so this idea here, this, this, this metaphor I think we could use here is that the house is our belief system. It's, it's what you believe. Because what you believe is going to determine how you respond to when the storms come. It, it determines how you're going to cope, how you're going to live, how you, where are you going to turn? What are you going to do when there's pressure, when there's struggles? And that's what Paul's been trying to do this whole time is establish within them to build up with them a solid, trustworthy, dependable belief system. So here's a snapshot of some of the things I think he's been sharing throughout this book so far in in second Corinthians chapter three in verses four, five, and six, he says, our adequacy is not in ourselves, but in Jesus. He's the one that's made us adequate as these ministers of the new covenant. So our strength comes from him, not from ourselves. In, in chapter four, verses six to 12, he talks about the struggles that we face, the pressure, the, the feeling abandoned, the, the attacks and, and everything that we're going through, the persecutions is meant to squeeze the life of Jesus out of us, right? That we face death so that life may be manifested to those around us. That's sort of like, how do you get the toothpaste out of a toothpaste tube? You've got to squeeze it. And how does Jesus come out of you and I? Sometimes we need to be squeezed. But when you're trusting in Jesus, the life of Jesus comes out. Second Corinthians 5, 7, he says, we walk by faith, not by sight. If you look only at this world, you would get discouraged very quickly. Because this world is messed up upside down and backwards. But we don't walk by sight. We don't walk based on what we see. We trust by faith who God is. What he's promised us is character. 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Tim, you're as righteous as you're ever going to get because you're as righteous as God is today. Not because what Tim did, but because what Jesus did. You already have this new identity and a new identity that is completely perfect, Neil. Completely perfect. Do you act perfectly all the time? But that's not the point because what you do doesn't determine who you are. You were born this way. You were born again in Christ, holy and righteous. That's who we are. And then as we saw recently in second Corinthians 12, nine and 10 about how our weaknesses are not our enemy. That when we're weak, we discover a strength in Christ, a strength in God that is far greater than anything we can imagine because that grace, God's power is made perfect in our weakness. God's grace, his power is enough. It's sufficient no matter what you're going through. And essentially these are the core truths that Paul's trying to edify, build up within the, the Corinthians. The, the knowledge that, that God is for you because God only and ever loves you perfectly and purely. Never for a moment does that love uh, wane, dissipate or decline in any way. It's perfect the whole time. My God is in control and always working for my good. And my God will sustain me because my God is enough and he's in me right now. Those are these, these core basic fundamental beliefs that Paul is trying to instill within the Corinthians. And by extension, by you and I, knowing that if we believe these things, yes, there'll be difficulties. Yes, your life will feel like it's going up and down like a roller coaster at times. And yes, your emotions will be all over the place, but you will be able to move forward by faith, trusting in who God is, who you are now as a result and how he lives inside of you. And so these are the things that Paul's trying to edify. He's trying to build up within the church. 
And now that he's got this trust restored, now that he, he, that they know his heart for him, he's able to speak on some pretty difficult things. He's going to be able to meddle a little bit. Because sometimes in order to build up this solid foundation, to build up a stronger home, you have to tear down the things that are weak. Maybe there's some walls in this house that we've been building that are, are moldy, that are, are really just made out of paper mache, that they're not meant to be load-bearing, and yet we've been trying to make them load-bearing. Things that aren't good for us. And so Paul now wants to go in and he wants to tear these things down. He wants to remove them out of the equation so that they don't harm us. But that means he's going to say things that are hard to hear. But as a famous proverb says, faithful are the wounds of a brother, of a friend. And that's the thing. That's the case here. What Paul's going to do is, is he's going to say some things that might be hard to hear, but because of his love for them. So let's read them together in verses 20 and 21. Because please understand that might apply to us as well. For I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish. That perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. And I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity immorality and sensuality, which they've practiced. In essence, what he's afraid is that when he comes to them for this third time, that they're going to continue to be struggling with sins from their past. Now it's important to understand here that the struggle here is, or the concern he has for them is really more in that they're not struggling with their sin. See, there's a big difference between someone who's struggling with their sin and failing and giving into it, but wanting help versus someone who's not struggling with their sin and has sort of given themselves over to it. And they just sort of accepted it. That's life. It's, it's, it's not a big deal. And they're just willing to go forward with it. And so Paul, he's worried that he's going to meet people who are no longer concerned with the struggle. who have just sort of given themselves over to it. And then now they're, they're indulging in that sin. And so if that happens and this, if that were the case, Paul says, out of my love for you, we're going to have to confront you. We're going to have to meddle with you and it's going to be uncomfortable. And I think that's such a, an important moment in Paul's relationship with the Corinthians. See, the past number of years that, that I've noticed in teaching this new covenant grace is it's gotten more and more popular as the years have gone on. I, I remember when I first started teaching this, I, I was deemed a radical. I was deemed a heretic. I, I, I took a lot of pride actually, to be honest with you, being called a heretic, but it's been a long time since anyone's called me a heretic. And the reason is because grace has become more and more mainstream. It's become more and more, more popular. And then that's a, that's a good thing to a point. Because you see, as it's become more and more mainstream and more and more popular, then people are now using the grace message for their own benefit, their own gain, because it is a wonderful message to teach. Who doesn't want to talk about the love of God? Who doesn't want to let people know that they're loved and they're accepted when they've been beat up for most of their lives? It's a wonderful message to teach. The, the problem is though, is that only part of the grace message is being taught. The part that is the most appealing to the hearer. And so now I start hearing things from, 
from other teachers and they say things such as, I only ever want to talk about God's love. I only want to talk about the positive things about God's grace. Why, why would I talk about the negative things like the flesh and sin and, and those things? I don't know. Just, just talk about God's love. It's bigger. You'll never exhaust it. So why bother talking about those things? And they, they actually take pride in the fact that they never talk about sin or the flesh. I hear things like, you know, we don't really need to talk about hell. We just need to talk about God's love. Or someone, people have told me, you know, hell never actually shows up in the Bible. And I look at them and I'm, I'm exhausted in my soul thinking along those lines because it's so immature and so um, just tiresome that you would think something like that. You know why the word hell never shows up in the Bible? Because it doesn't. I agree with you. It doesn't. Because hell is an English word and the Bible wasn't written in English. But you know what words do show up in the Bible? In the Greek, Hades which is translated hell or the Hebrew Gehenna, which is translated as hell. And you know who talk about hell more than anyone in the Bible it was Jesus. So apparently Jesus wasn't afraid to talk about hell. Well, that was, that was old covenant. That was before the cross. Now, after the cross, you know, now we just talk about the grace of God and the, and his love of God. That's all we should really be focusing on. Really? You know, the New Testament writers and the epistles talked about sin. The writer to Hebrews in Hebrews 10 and verse 26 warned about sin and says that if you go on sinning without caring about it, without struggling against it, just indulging in it, there are consequences. Paul, even to the first letter to these Corinthians, he says, wake up to your righteousness and stop your sinning. Many of the New Testament writers talk about sin and sinning. And they address those things. I had one man, I remember many years ago, a very, very famous teacher. I won't say his name because many of you will know him. But he was bragging one time that he went to a church. He was invited there as a speaker. And, and he, he shared about the grace of God. And afterwards they came up to him and they said, you know, we were worried that, that as a church that has openly embraced homosexuality, that you would say things about us to that point. We were worried that you were going to confront us on that. We were so glad you, you didn't. And, and the speaker's answer to them was, was very telling. He says, why would I ever do that? I would never talk to you about your sin when I can only talk to you about the grace of God. And it sounds so beautiful and loving, and yet it's the opposite of that. Really? Really? You, you love these people so much that you're not going to talk about something that's causing them hurt and pain and suffering in their life. You love them so much that you wouldn't actually be willing to confront them. I'm not saying he should have gone up there and spoke about sin and homosexuality because maybe that's all God wanted him to do was speak about the grace of God. My issue is that you would never speak about it. You would never talk to someone about their sin. That's not love. That's, that's not love at all. Proverbs 13, 24 says, he who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Think about it as a parent. If, if you love your children, you will say no to them at times. 
If you love your children, you will talk to them about their behavior at times. Even if it's not what they want to hear, it's what they need. But if you don't love them, you don't care. And it doesn't matter what they do. And so that thinking that we would never address sin is just, again, it's so shallow. It's so immature. And really, I think it's more about the other person trying to defend their own reputation. That they only want to share a positive message of God's grace because they only want to be thought of as positive. They're afraid to say the hard things. And not saying those hard things, all you do is you leave another person exposed. Let me give you some illustrations, simple illustration. Imagine you have a piece of lettuce stuck between your teeth and everyone sees it, but no one says anything about it. Is that loving? What's the loving thing to say? Alex, you got, you got something there. No, seriously. No, like, that's the loving thing, right? It's just, just to point it out. Even though in that moment that you might feel a bit of embarrassment, what's more embarrassing is no one pointed it out to you. Here's another illustration the, the famous Aesop's fables. I think they should probably go back to teaching those Aesop's fables in school, by the way, because there's a lot of wisdom in those things. And one of those fables was the emperor's new clothes. Remember the emperor's new clothes? A couple of con artists show up to the king and says, we got new fabric. It's the best, best fabric out there, but only smart people can see it. Can you, can you see my fabric? Do you like it? And what's the king afraid of? Well, if I don't see it, I admit I'm stupid. So, oh, I love the colors. Oh, that's just so amazing. Oh, I would love to have a, 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 an outfit made out of that. Oh, we would love that too. And if you pay us enough money, we will take this magical fabric and, and create an outfit for you. And they do. And he puts it on in his mind, but he's stark raven naked. And no one in the kingdom loved him enough to say, King, you got no clothes on. And they let him go in a parade down Main Street until one little child pointed out the obvious. Um, you're naked. You got nothing on. That's love. And no one else in the kingdom loved him enough to do that. Instead, they were all afraid that if they said something, the king would get angry at them. They weren't willing to confront Think about the times where you, you watch a friend destroy their life with the choices they're making and it only ends in heartache or financial ruin where they're neglecting their family. They're chasing after adulterous relationships, addictions that will simply just drain the family bank account and compound the problem over and over and over again. Listen guys, Romans six twenty three: the wages of sin is death. That's not a salvation passage. When Paul was writing that, he's talking to believers post-salvation. When they're asking the question, does it matter if I still sin? And the answer is yes, because the wages of sin is death. Every time you and I sin, you and I experience death. I have tested it over and over again. And I know I will continue to test it again and again. And every time I will get the same result, death not separation from God, because what can separate me from God? Nothing, not even you, most certainly not your sin. It's already been addressed. So it's not a spiritual death I experience, but it's a death in my soul and a death I experience in my body. Maybe it's fatigue, exhaustion, short temper, lack of patience, 
just feeling gross, feeling yucky, feeling miserable. Maybe it's shame upon shame or guilt or whatever it is. I'm just, I'm experiencing death in my soul and my body, even though my spirit is fully alive in Jesus. That's what he's warning against. And, and to not speak out on that in a loved one's life. So I, I don't really love you enough to make this relationship difficult to spare you of that death. I'm more interested in my own comfort and willing to let you experience that death so that I don't feel the uncomfortableness of it. Our government's doing this by the way today with safe injection sites where right now they can go and they're provided a place, they're provided needles and they provide the drugs to, to feed the drug habit. And here's the big problem without ever considering a plan to get them off the drugs. The plan ends with them getting high. That's it. That's as far as it goes. And so what is our government doing? They are simply feeding the habit, leaving that person trapped in their drug abuse. That's not love. But they love to do it because it makes them feel good because they're taking away someone's pain of withdrawal. They're taking someone's pain away of using other sinful ways to get high. So we're making it easier for them, but it's just death upon death, upon death. The most loving thing would be to help that person break free of the bondage. See, a test of love is, is determined by how willing you are to confront another person. When you see that sin, how it's ruining their life, how it's robbing them of their joy, their peace of life in Jesus, and you're willing to get up in their face. A friend of mine he, um, he told me, he tells a story about how as a pastor, he confronted this man about sin in his life. And, and he says, pastor, where, where's the grace? Like, like, come on, show me some grace here. And really what he was trying to say is it's not a big deal. Like I'm forgiven. I'm, it's already been addressed so I can continue in it. So back off and accept me because what you're doing is not comfortable for me. My friend said to him, because of grace, because of love, I'm confronting you now. Because I care about you, I'm confronting you now. See, as a counselor, I've had to do this countless times where couples come into my office and, and maybe they're, they're arguing and they're bickering back and forth. And that's, that's informative for me as a counselor. I kind of sit back and I watch and I kind of see how do they fight? Do they fight fair or do they fight dirty? Most often they're fighting dirty, which is why they're in my office. And so I'll see them going back and forth and, and one spouse is berating the other maybe. And they feel so justified because the other person did this, this, and this. And that's why I'm angry. And that's why I'm treating this way. And you deserve this. You should be doing that. And they're just going after them. And then they look at to me for my approval because they want me on their side because the two of them can fix their spouse. And that's why they come for counseling. And it's at this moment, what I often have done is, is I'd grab a Bible and I'd hand it to them. And I'd say, I want you to look up a verse. And they get it and they get all excited and they open it up and they're ready. Where are we turning? I said, I want you to find the verse that justifies how you've treated your spouse. At which point they close the Bible. Look at me with a bit of a side eye sometimes or other times they kind of laugh to themselves or other times they just get more angry because they know that what they've done is wrong and they can't justify it, but they're not there for me to confront them. They were there for me to confront their spouse. 
But because I love them both, I'm willing to confront both. Now, some people, they got up and they, they walked out of my office, never to return. Others, they, they set out to disqualify me. Because if they could disqualify me, then they don't have to listen to me. And now what I said to them about their sin is irrelevant because I, I don't matter. I'm in the wrong. But you see, I was willing to confront them because I was willing to love them. I was willing to say the difficult thing that they didn't want to hear, but they needed to hear in that moment. And that's what Paul's doing here. And please understand, he didn't begin the letter this way. I think that's really important to note. He didn't start out saying to the church in Corinth, saints by calling, let's talk about your sin. It's not where he starts. He spent almost 12 full chapters establishing his heart, his love, their identity in Christ and who they are. And they're not under the law. They're under grace. And they have this life of Jesus inside them and they're righteous and they're holy. And this is who they are. And he's established that over and over and over and over again, almost 12 full chapters to spend about 10 verses now talking about their sin. He's established that relationship that he's now able to speak truth and love. And he's doing that because he's fighting for them by willing to fight with them. Do you see that? He's willing to fight with them because he's fighting for them. And he, he's done that because he's gone to great lengths to prove his love because they know he loves them. He's able to speak in this direct manner to them. My hope this morning is if you've been here for any extended period of time, you know, our heart for you as God's people. You're the bride of Christ, his beloved. You're the ones that he said, I'd rather die and go to hell than be without. You're the one he says, I'd lay everything on the line for. That's his heart. And that's my heart for you guys. It's why we're here day in, day out, week after week. We're trying to create this, this beautiful thing called the church of God, the bride of Christ. We know our identity in Christ. We know that love. We know that grace. And we're experiencing and walking in the freedom of that. Which means that we might have to deal with some of the things holding us back. Which means that we might need a medal. And I want to read again the, the passage in verses 20 and 21. But I want you to hear it now through your own lens though. You see the church in Corinth has got a lot of things in common with you and I today. Yes, it's 2000 years ago that they existed, but they were a very wealthy city. And here in Kitchener, Waterloo, Cambridge area, we live in one of the wealthiest parts of the world. Make no mistake. You are in the 1% of the world. We're very affluent, very well off. It was a city with many immigrants and a lot of mixed ethnicity where people were coming for a fresh start. And that's what we have here. But as a result of people wanting that fresh start, many were fixated on money. They were chasing money because that money was going to be security. It was going to be power. They're going to get ahead. They're going to have a fresh start this way. And so they're chasing after what the world had to offer them. It's a culture that lived for the excess. It was overly sexualized. 
Think about all the different multiple temples it had and all the prostitution going on in the temples. And it was a city that loved its entertainment and its sports. They had their own version of the Olympic games there. All things that you could say are true of our culture today. Overly sexualized money, worldly chasing after, after more power, wanting entertainment and living in excess. And so maybe what Paul is saying to them, he's saying to us as well. So let me read again in verse 20. For I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you not to be, to be not what I wish and may be found to you to not be what you wish. That I might have to say some hard things to you. That perhaps there will be strife. That word strife means contention. It means infighting. Maybe that's true in your marriage. Or maybe it's true in some of the relationships you're having with friends or you just can't seem to, to meet, meet eye to eye. It goes on to talk about jealousy, envying what others have and what you don't have. Angry tempers, this outburst of anger or, or powering up in order to control people or, or send them off so that, that you say, feel safe and protected or you're able to control them. Disputes factions and polarized groups and demonizing people who don't think like you. We're not that far away from COVID. Remember COVID and the lockdowns and, and the anger that was going on. Oh, you're wearing a mask. What's wrong with you? You didn't get vaccinated. What's wrong with you? And just so much division going on back and forth to the point where we are willing to see loved ones die. Just this week, a woman was denied life-saving surgery because she didn't get vaccinated. So she died this week. That's how polarized, how ideological we dug in. Slanders, where we're smearing others, where we're talking negatively about them and with the intent of tearing them down. Which is different from gossip. Which is the murmuring going on behind people's backs. The whispers. Sounds so innocent. Arrogance, he says, full of pride. And then disturbances. All this disorder, this, this chaos, this can't seem to have any kind of unity. Goes on in verse 21. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. And I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity and uncleanliness. This uncleanliness is a general lack of morals, such as lying, acting without integrity, acting selfishly. The word for immorality is the Greek word pornea. It's where you get pornography from. It refers to all sexual sin or the, the old King James would call fornication. Any kind of sex, any kind of sex out of the covenant relationship between a man and a woman. Which you call marriage. And then sensuality. This unbridled lust could be for food. It could be for drunkenness, material things, smoking, money, just general gluttony. He says, I'm worried that you're continuing in all these things. It's essentially the same list that Paul gives in Galatians 5, 19 and 21. We talked about the deeds of the flesh. Please understand. It's not an anger. It's not immorality. It's not a sensuality problem. It's a flesh problem. It's just presenting itself in drunkenness and gluttony and anger and sensuality and pornography and adultery and so forth. But it's a flesh problem at its root. 
And the answer Paul says in one word is this word repentance. We got to define this word because I think it's been so misunderstood. It's, it's often been understood as just a change of behavior. So if you're struggling with pornography, we'll just stop it. If you're struggling with, with outbursts of anger or gossip or, or, or overeating, just, just quit it. Don't do it anymore. Try harder. Stop it. That's not repentance. That's not what Paul's talking about or the other New Testament writers when he talks about repentance. The word repentance is metanoia. And it literally means to change your thinking, to change your beliefs about something. And as you change and inform your beliefs and you think differently, it will lead to a different will. It will lead to different behaviors, but it's not about the behaviors. It's about what you believe. And, and for too long, maybe what we've done is, is we believe that our sin isn't really that bad. That's not really hurting anyone. It's, it's, it's a victimless sin. It's a victimless crime. But there's no such thing. The wages of sin is death. Even though that sin may not be against another person, it might only be against you. You now are walking around with the stench of death around you rather than the aroma of Jesus when you go through life. And so maybe what we need to do is we need to start with recognizing sin to be sin. For example, with pornography, pornography is not a victimless crime. It distorts how you see people. It robs you of your own integrity, robs you of your own strength. It turns other people into sexual objects for your own selfish pleasure. And just destroys your own character. Or maybe recognizing that having sex with someone that I'm not married to is still sin. Oh, it's just a piece of paper. What does that matter to God? It matters a lot because it's not just a piece of paper. It's a covenant relationship that you're unwilling to enter into. It's basically saying, I, I don't really want to give my life wholeheartedly over to you. Instead, I'm more interested in just using you for my own gratification, my own pleasure. And I don't really want that bond and that covenant relationship. That's not what sex is for. Yes, it is meant to be pleasurable. Yes, it's meant to be enjoyed. I mean, great verse in Song of Solomon. Drink up, lovers. Enjoy it. It's a gift from God. It's meant for pleasure. But within a covenant relationship of marriage as God designed it. And whenever you and I use things beyond what God's designed it for, we hurt ourselves. Then there's gluttony. Overeating, drinking too much, smoking too much marijuana. Notice the drinking too much. It's not a sin to drink. But it's a sin to, drink, it's a sin to get drunk. It's sin to be dependent upon that more than dependent on Jesus. And it's easy to spot getting high on weed or marijuana. It's easy to spot using drugs or alcohol, but food is easy to hide. And yet it's a sin to eat too much food. It's a sin to overeat because that's gluttony. Disrespecting and running other people down, especially your spouse. Maybe we just think it's not a big deal to just talk negatively and talk smack about people not realizing the hurt and the damage it's causing. Maybe it gets round to them. And they hear it later on, or maybe they hear it and they just think, well, I'm not safe here. Running to social media or streaming apps like Netflix and Disney just to escape life and its responsibilities. 
Life's too hard out here. So I'm going to hide in my little bubble here. And I'm going to disengage. That's sin. Because it's robbing people of the opportunity to experience life and you to experience life in those moments as well. Powering up to use your anger, to use your authority, to control other people without regard for what the other person needs. Justifying your bitterness as an opportunity to enact your own vengeance or greed, chasing money. I just want to get that promotion. Just need a little bit more money here. Maybe if I, maybe if I do this, if I do that, raise the prices, maybe if I invest over here and you're not actually thinking, God, what do you want to do with your money? It's just about growing your own money pit. See, all this matters because all sin hurts you first and those around you second. Please understand, it's okay to struggle with it. I have all the time in the world for people who struggle with sin and give into it. My problem is if you don't struggle with it. And that's what Paul was saying here. If you'd have shown up to the church in Corinth and they were struggling with sin, but they say, Paul, help us. He would have wrapped his arms around them in love and grace and would have said, it's okay. We'll get through it together. You're loved. His concern was he's going to show up and they don't struggle with it and they justify it. It's not a big deal. It's not hurting anyone. I feel better about my fact. I actually am a better husband when I look at pornography so that I can now not need it from my wife. They say the lies they've told the deceit they're under. You know what Paul do? He says, I will meet you with love and grace, but it won't be a hug. I'll be up in your face because I need to protect you and your family now. And so my struggle is if you don't struggle with your sin, I'll still love you. And I still got time for you, but you're going to be disappointed probably in me. And that's what Paul's concern was. So what we need is repentance. We need to change what we think. All sin hurts. All sin results in death. And I don't want any part of that. Instead, Lord Jesus, I want you to be the answer to what I thought sin was going to do. Instead of running away to, to social media and to, to Netflix and streaming apps, Jesus, how do you want to provide that comfort? Instead of running away to pornography or alcohol or food, Jesus, what do you want to do here to provide that, that comfort and that love right now? Instead of powering up and controlling another person, Jesus, how do you want to love that person? Show me what you see. Maybe I see a hurting person I never saw before. I just saw someone hurting me. And he gives you new insights. Then he gives you the words and the care and the love and the, the compassion. Remember God's grace is sufficient, even in your weaknesses. And so we're repenting about sin. We're repenting about Jesus and that Jesus can be all those things that I need in every given moment. And my, now that my mind is set on him, my eyes are turned towards him. I've repented of my sinful fleshly ways. I'm rethinking new. I'm trusting Jesus. I'm now walking after the spirit. And the life of Jesus now flows through me. See, ultimately, that's all repentance is. Changing my mind about sin and changing my mind about Jesus. That Jesus is better than my sin. You did that at salvation and we're doing that each and every day as we're being transformed by the renewing of our mind. Let me close with one more passage. It's Galatians five verse beginning verse 13 to 23. It's, it's a very much a parallel passage, 
But I think it does a great job of, again, highlighting everything that Paul is trying to convey to the Corinthians and to us as well. Paul begins in verse 13. He says, for you are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. You are free to sin. It's true. You are loved. You are accepted. You are righteous. You are holy. You are perfect. That does not change when you sin. But don't use that freedom as an excuse or a cover for your sin. But instead, through love, serve one another. Lay your life down for another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. That envy, that jealousy, that bitterness, that anger, that gossip, that slander, it's biting each other. It's hurting each other. And all you're going to do is end up consuming one another. But I say, here's the repentance. Walk by the spirit. Trust Jesus. Walk with Jesus. Let Jesus live through you and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets a desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. The flesh is not you. It's not your nature. It's your enemy. It's your old master. And it's against you. And it's opposed against the spirit and they're fighting with one another. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. You know what you please to do? You please to love. You please to live right. You please to live holy. You please to live in a healthy way. How do I know? Because you feel miserable every time you sin afterwards. That's when you find your real desire. I'm not doing what I want to do. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. This is what the flesh looks like in our lives. And you'll see a very similar list to what he had, what he said to the Corinthians, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Listen, 2000 years ago, Paul wrote those words, but people have not changed in 2000 years. Still applies today. of which I forewarn you just as I forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the spirit. Notice it's not the deeds of the spirit. Now it's the fruit. It's the byproduct of the spirit. You don't make this happen. The spirit makes this happen. It's not the fruit of the Christian. It's not the fruit of hard work and determination. It's the fruit. The byproduct of trusting in the Holy spirit in you is love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. You don't need a rule book for this, guys. You got Jesus. He's all that we need. So let's repent of the worldly thinking. And let's repent and change our thinking and recognize that Jesus is enough. Because he's not giving up on you. His grace is more than enough to, to, to walk with you through your sin and your struggle. Whenever you sin and you will sin again, multiple times. And every time you sin, God doesn't turn his back on you. He doesn't walk away from you. He doesn't disassociate himself with you. He's with you the whole time. Cause he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And he's not about to give up on you, but in confronting us on our sin, 
It's saying, because I love you enough. Here's one more word. A lot of people say, well, the Holy Spirit doesn't convict us of our sin. They point to a passage in John 16, where it says he's going to convict the world of their sin. So therefore the Holy Spirit will never convict you of your sin. That's your conscience. Really? So, so God has nothing to do with talking to me about sin. That's only my conscience. So there is something I can do apart from Jesus. I can convict myself is what you're saying. Because Jesus says there's nothing you can do apart from me. So what makes you think you can convict your own self of your own sin? No. The Holy Spirit loves you enough to speak to you about your sin because he wants you to walk away from it, to be free from it. What loving parent wouldn't speak to their child about what they're struggling with? So we're here for you as elders, as friends, maybe family members. We're here to love on you. And if you want, if you want help right now, we're happy to pray for you. We're happy to set time aside. Rob and I in particular have lots of more time than, than, than Josh and Greg do. And quite frankly, we're way more help than Josh and Greg. I mean, they look at them. But we would all four of us and, and others as well in the would love to help you and love you and walk with you. You don't have to do this alone. That's the beauty of God's grace and the bride of Christ. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that, that people will receive what you have shared with the right heart, an open heart, a heart knowing that it's out of love and concern that you speak some harsh things to us at times. And maybe today we're not struggling with sin, but maybe we will down the road. And that's when we'll be reminded about this. And may we not be afraid of you. May we have soft hearts to you and feel and experience the love and the freedom that you offer us. In your name we pray, amen. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.